Chapters fifty five and fifty six of Tess of the D'Urbervilles. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter fifty five. At eleven o'clock that night, having secured a bed at one of the hotels, and telegraphed his address to his father immediately on his arrival, he walked out into the streets of Sandbourne. It was too late to call on or inquire for any one, and he reluctantly postponed his purpose till the morning, but he could not retire to rest just yet. This fashionable watering-place, with its eastern and its western stations, its piers, its groves of pines, its promenades, and its covered gardens, was, to Angel Clare, like a fairy place, suddenly created by the stroke of a wand, and allowed to get a little dusty. An outlying eastern tract of the enormous Egdon Waste was close at hand. Yet, on the very verge of that tawny piece of antiquity, such a glittering novelty as this pleasure city had chosen to spring up. Within the space of a mile from its outskirts every irregularity of the soil was prehistoric. Every channel, an undisturbed British trackway, not a sod having been turned there since the days of the Caesars. Yet the exotic had grown here, suddenly as the prophet's gourd, and had drawn hither Tess. By the midnight lamps he went up and down the winding way of this new world in an old one, and could discern between the trees and against the stars the lofty roofs, chimneys, gazebos, and towers of the numerous fanciful residences of which the place was composed. It was a city of detached mansions, a Mediterranean lounging-place on the English Channel, and as seen now by night it seemed even more imposing than it was. The sea was near at hand, but not intrusive. It murmured, and he thought it was the pines. The pines murmured in precisely the same tones, and he thought they were the sea. Where could Tess possibly be? A cottage-girl, his young wife, amidst all this wealth and fashion? The more he pondered, the more was he puzzled. Were there any cows to milk here? There were certainly no fields to till. She was probably engaged to do something in one of these large houses, and he sauntered along, looking at the chamber windows and their lights going out one by one, and wondered which of them might be hers. Conjecture was useless, and just after twelve o'clock he entered and went to bed. Before putting out his light he re-read Tess's impassioned letter. Sleep, however, he could not. So near her, yet so far from her, and he continually lifted the window-blind, and regarded the backs of the opposite houses, and wondered behind which of the sashes she reposed at that moment. He might almost as well have sat up all night. In the morning he arose at seven, and shortly after went out, 
taking the direction of the chief post-office. At the door he met an intelligent postman coming out with letters for the morning delivery. "'Do you know the address of a Mrs. Clare?' asked Angel. The postman shook his head. Then, remembering that she would have been likely to continue the use of her maiden name, Clare said, "'Of a Miss Durbeyfield?' "'Durbeyfield.' This was also strange to the postman addressed. "'There's visitors coming and going every day, as you know, sir,' he said, "'and without the name of the house it is impossible to find them.' One of his comrades hastening out at that moment, the name was repeated to him. "'I know no name of Derbyfield, but there is the name of Durbeville at the Herons,' said the second. "'That's it,' cried Clare pleased to think that she had reverted to the real pronunciation. What place is the Herons? A stylish lodging-house. Tis all lodging-houses here, blessy. Clare received directions how to find the house, and hastened thither, arriving with the milkman. The Herons, though an ordinary villa, stood in its own grounds, and was certainly the last place in which one would have expected to find lodgings so private was its appearance. If poor Tess was a servant here, as he feared, she would go to the back door to that milkman, and he was inclined to go thither also. However, in his doubts he turned to the front, and rang. The hour being early, the landlady herself opened the door. Clare inquired for Theresa D'Urberville, or Durbeyfield. "'Mrs. D'Urberville?' Yes. Tess then passed as a married woman, and he felt glad, even though she had not adopted his name. "'Would you kindly tell her that a relative is anxious to see her?' "'It's rather early. What name shall I give, sir?' "'Angel.' "'Mr. Angel?' "'No. Angel is my Christian name. She'll understand.' "'I'll see if she's awake.' He was shown into the front room, the dining-room, and looked out through the spring curtains at the little lawn and the rhododendrons and other shrubs upon it. Obviously her position was by no means so bad as he had feared, and it crossed his mind that she must somehow have claimed and sold the jewels to attain it. He did not blame her for one moment. Soon his sharpened ear detected footsteps upon the stairs at which his heart thumped so painfully that he could hardly stand firm. "'Dear me! What will she think of me, so altered as I am?' he said to himself. And the door opened. Tess appeared on the threshold, not at all as he had expected to see her, bewilderingly otherwise, indeed. Her great natural beauty was, if not heightened, rendered more obvious by her attire. She was loosely wrapped in a cashmere dressing-gown of grey-white, embroidered in half-mourning tints, and she wore slippers of the same hue. Her neck rose out of a frill of down, and her well-remembered cable of dark-brown hair was partially coiled up in a mass at the back of her head, and partly hanging on her shoulder, the evident result of haste. He had held out his arms, 
but they had fallen again to his side, for she had not come forward, remaining still in the opening of the doorway. Mere yellow skeleton that he was now, he felt the contrast between them, and thought his appearance distasteful to her. Tess, he said huskily, can you forgive me for going away? Can't you come to me? How do you get to be like this?" "'It is too late,' said she, her voice sounding hard through the room, her eyes shining unnaturally. "'I did not think rightly of you. I did not see you as you were,' he continued to plead. "'I have learnt to since, dearest Tessie mine.' "'Too late, too late!' she said waving her hand in the impatience of a person whose tortures cause every instant to seem an hour. "'Don't come close to me, Angel. No, you must not. Keep away.' "'But don't you love me, my dear wife, because I have been so pulled down by illness?' "'You are not so fickle. I am come on purpose for you. My mother and father will welcome you now.' "'Yes, oh, yes, yes! But I say, I say, it is too late!" She seemed to feel like a fugitive in a dream, who tries to move away, but cannot. "'Don't you know all? Don't you know it? Yet how do you come here if you do not know?' "'I inquired, here and there, and I found the way.' "'I waited, and waited for you,' she went on her tone suddenly resuming their old fluty pathos. But you did not come, and I wrote to you, and you did not come. He kept on saying you would never come any more, and that I was a foolish woman. And he was very kind to me, and to mother, and to all of us after father's death. He—I don't understand—he has won me back to him. Clare looked at her keenly, then, gathering her meaning, flagged like one plague-stricken, and his glance sank. It fell on her hands, which, once rosy, were now white and more delicate. She continued, "'He is upstairs. I hate him now because he told me a lie, that you would not come again, and you have come.' These clothes are what he put upon me. I don't care what he did with me. But will you go again, Angel, please? Never come any more." They stood fixed, their baffled hearts looking out of their eyes with a joylessness pitiful to see. Both seemed to implore something to shelter them from reality. "'Ah! It is my fault!' said Clare but he could not get on. Speech was as inexpressive as silence. But he had a vague consciousness of one thing, though it was not clear to him till later, that his original Tess had spiritually ceased to recognize the body before him as hers, allowing it to drift like a corpse upon the current, in a direction disassociated from its living will. A few instants passed, and he found that Tess had gone. His face grew colder and more shrunken as he stood, 
concentrated on the moment, and a minute or two after he found himself in the street, walking along he did not know whither. End of chapter 55 Chapter 56 Mrs. Brooks, the landlady who was the householder at the Herons, and owner of all the handsome furniture, was not a person of an unusually curious turn of mind. She was too deeply materialised, poor woman, by her long and enforced bondage to that arithmetical demon, profit and loss, to retain much curiosity for its own sake, and apart from lodgers' pockets. Nevertheless, the visit of Angel Clare to her well-paying tenants, Mr. and Mrs. D'Urberville, as she deemed them, was sufficiently exceptional in point of time and manner to reinvigorate the feminine proclivity which had been stifled down as useless, save in its bearings to the letting trade. Tess had spoken to her husband from the doorway, without entering the room and Mrs. Brooks, who stood within the partly closed door of her own sitting-room at the back of the passage, could hear fragments of the conversation—if conversation it could be called—between those two wretched souls. She heard Tess reascend the stairs to the first floor, and the departure of Clare, and the closing of the front door behind him. Then the door of the room above was shut and Mrs. Brooks knew that Tess had re-entered her apartment. As the young lady was not fully dressed, Mrs. Brooks knew that she would not emerge again for some time. She accordingly ascended the stairs softly, and stood at the door of the front room, a drawing-room connected with the room immediately behind it, which was a bedroom, by folding doors in the common manner. This first floor, containing Mrs. Brooks' best apartments, had been taken by the week by the D'Urbervilles. The back room was now in silence, but from the drawing-room there came sounds. All that she could at first distinguish of them was one syllable, continually repeated in a low note of moaning, as if it came from a soul bound to some Ioxionian wheel. Oh, oh, oh! Then a silence, then a heavy sigh, and again, oh, oh, oh! The landlady looked through the keyhole. Only a small space of the room inside was visible, but within that space came a corner of the breakfast table, which was already spread for the meal, and also a chair beside. Over the seat of the chair Tess's face was bowed, her posture being a kneeling one in front of it. Her hands were clasped over her head. The skirts of her dressing-gown and the embroidery of her nightgown flowed upon the floor behind her, and her stockingless feet, from which the slippers had fallen, protruded upon the carpet. It was from her lips that came the murmur of unspeakable despair. Then a man's voice from the adjoining bedroom. "'What's the matter?' She did not answer, but went on, in a tone which was a soliloquy rather than an exclamation, and a dirge rather than a soliloquy. Mrs. Brooks could only catch a portion. "'And then my dear, dear husband came home to me, and I did not know it. 
and you had used your cruel persuasion upon me. You did not stop using it, no, you did not stop my little sisters and brothers and my mother's needs, they were the things you moved me by, and you said my husband would never come back, never, and you taunted me and said what a simpleton I was to expect him, and at last I believed you and gave way. And then he came back. Now he is gone, gone a second time, and I have lost him now for ever, and he will not love me the littlest bit ever any more, only hate me. Oh, yes, I have lost him now, again, because of you." In writhing with her head on the chair she turned her face towards the door, and Mrs. Brooks could see the pain upon it and that her lips were bleeding from the clench of her teeth upon them, and that the long lashes of her closed eyes stuck in wet tags to her cheeks. And she continued, "'And he is dying. He looks as if he is dying, and my sin will kill him and not kill me. Oh, you have torn my life all to pieces made me be what I prayed you in pity not to make me be again. My own true husband will never, never—oh, God, I cannot bear this, I cannot!" There were more and sharper words from the man, then a sudden rustle. She had sprung to her feet. Mrs. Brooks, thinking that the speaker was coming to rush out of the door, hastily retreated down the stairs. She need not have done so, however, for the door of the sitting-room was not opened. But Mrs. Brooks felt it unsafe to watch on the landing again, and entered her own parlour below. She could hear nothing through the floor, though she listened intently, and thereupon went to the kitchen to finish her interrupted breakfast. Coming up presently to the front room on the ground floor, she took up some sewing, waiting for her lodgers to ring that she might take away the breakfast, which she meant to do herself, to discover what was the matter, if possible. Overhead, as she sat, she could now hear the floorboards slightly creak, as if someone were walking about, and presently the movement was explained by the rustle of garments against the banisters, the opening and the closing of the front door, and the form of Tess passing to the gate on her way into the street. She was fully dressed now in the walking costume of a well-to-do young lady in which she had arrived, with the sole addition that over her hat and black feathers a veil was drawn. Mrs. Brooks had not been able to catch any word of farewell, temporary or otherwise, between her tenants at the door above. They might have quarrelled, or Mr. D'Urberville might still be asleep, for he was not an early riser. She went into the back room, which was more especially her own apartment, and continued her sewing there. The lady lodger did not return, nor did the gentleman ring his bell. Mrs. Brooks pondered on the delay, and on what possible relation the visitor who had called so early bore to the couple upstairs. In reflecting, she leant back in her chair. As she did so, her eyes glanced casually over the ceiling, till they were arrested by a spot 
in the middle of its white surface, which she had never noticed there before. It was about the size of a wafer when she first observed it, but it speedily grew as large as the palm of her hand, and then she could perceive that it was red. The oblong white ceiling, with this scarlet blot in the midst, had the appearance of a gigantic ace of hearts. Mrs. Brooks had strange qualms of misgiving. She got upon the table and touched the spot in the ceiling with her fingers. It was damp, and she fancied that it was a blood-stain. Descending from the table she left the parlour and went upstairs, intending to enter the room overhead, which was the bedchamber at the back of the drawing-room. But, nerveless woman as she had now become, she could not bring herself to attempt the handle. She listened. The dead silence within was broken only by a regular beat. Drip, drip, drip. Mrs. Brooks hastened downstairs opened the front door, and ran into the street. A man she knew, one of the workmen employed at an adjoining villa, was passing by, and she begged him to come in and go upstairs with her. She feared something had happened to one of her lodgers. The workman assented, and followed her to the landing. She opened the door of the drawing-room, and stood back for him to pass in, entering herself behind him. The room was empty. The breakfast, a substantial repast of coffee, eggs, and cold ham, lay spread upon the table, untouched, as when she had taken it up, excepting that the carving-knife was missing. She asked the man to go through the folding doors into the adjoining room. He opened the doors, entered a step or two, and came back almost instantly with a rigid face. "'My good God! The gentleman in bed is dead! I think he has been hurt with a knife. A lot of blood had run down upon the floor.' The alarm was soon given, and the house which had lately been so quiet resounded with the tramp of many footsteps, a surgeon among the rest. The wound was small, but the point of the blade had touched the heart of the victim, who lay on his back, pale, fixed, dead, as if he had scarcely moved after the infliction of the blow. In a quarter of an hour the news that a gentleman who was a temporary visitor to the town had been stabbed in his bed spread through every street and villa of the popular watering-place. End of chapter 56